All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke in the New Testament. Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel account. And we'll be in Luke chapter 2. Talking this evening about hope. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. I will read that and then we will pray. And when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, served, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continue to speak of him to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Let's pray. Our Holy Father and gracious God, we are grateful for your word this evening. We are happy to submit ourselves to your authority as given to us in the Bible. We also readily admit that hope is in short supply, so we are thankful that you've given us your Son, the hope of the world. May our hearts be convicted of sin and filled with the aroma of Christ, that sweet aroma, the pleasant aroma of his sacrifice. In his name I pray, amen. Well, last week we covered the biblical theme of darkness and light. Darkness being a metaphor for sin and covenantal estrangement and light being the person of Jesus who came to disrupt said darkness. In the biblical economy, the light is always greater than the darkness. The first command of the Bible was, let there be light. And when God spoke those words, the darkness was pushed back. As the uncreated triune God, that which is made is always subordinate to him. And it can only be that way. This is because grace is greater than sin and wrath. Grace is greater than sin and wrath. The gospel is more formidable than anything in rebellion to it. So make sure that uh, sits with you. The gospel is more formidable than anything in rebellion to it. 
Jesus, the second Adam, is greater and more powerful than the first Adam. The resurrection of Christ is more impressive and significant than sin and iniquity. As we saw last week, sin's greatest power, death, was supplanted and defeated by the risen Lord. So think about it this way. The worst thing that sin can do is administer death. The wages of sin is death. That's the end goal, right? But when Christ rose victorious, death lost its power, which is what the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere with regard to death, where is your sting? And what all of this does for history is establish a righteousness and justice for the world. And in other words, history is being sanctified. History is currently being sanctified and purified. And far too often we remove the gospel of the kingdom from its historical context. Many Christians view the gospel as being a lifeline that is altogether detached from this world, sort of like the phone a friend thing. Oh yeah, the gospel gives me quick access and I don't have to pay any minutes to get a call to heaven. It's kind of what we tend to think in our Christian lives. Many Christians view the gospel as being completely detached from the world, having no real-world implications. We simply pray the sinner's prayer. We accept Jesus into our hearts, and then we go on living generally. We live our lives generally unmoved by the holiness of God, unconcerned with the Holy Spirit of God, and apathetic towards the dominion mandate God has given us. So the Christian life is oftentimes shifted into neutral, and we slip into a trance while the world is a dumpster fire burning all around us. But what happens when catastrophe hits you? What happens when you lose a spouse or a child or a parent? What happens when your life grinds to a halt because of some emergency situation? What happens when there's a massive power grab and takeover that encroaches on your family and even yourself and what you choose to put in your body or not. What do you do in those situations when you've been cruising along in your life, essentially shelving your theology up above the fridge and suddenly disaster strikes? So the question is to whom or where will you turn when things go sideways, when an accident takes place in your life, something happens, something changes things, what will you do? Now, what, what we intend to talk about tonight, what we are talking about, is hope that's set forth in the context of suffering. Hope in the midst of trial. Expectancy, for example. Being expectant for Christmas, and we all enjoy the Christmas gifts and the fun and that we get to have. That, there's an expectancy there. But there should be an, an expectancy in your life that's always there as you are eager to serve Christ and serve His kingdom. So hope set forth in the context of suffering, hope hope in the midst of a trial, expectancy in the midst of confusion and uncertainty. Now Luke shares with us what is commonly called or known as the presentation. There's the annunciation. There's all these, the the announcement of the child that that Sam read. There's, I guess, sections of the story that we have names for, and this one's called the presentation. Mary and Joseph take the child and present him to the Lord at the temple, hence the word presentation. However, there is there, I think, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. What Luke says is that there's a particular way in which the kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of man. It is wholly unlike the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time of Christ's birth, but the kingdom is different than that of Caesar Augustus. It's it's wholly unlike 
Pilate's paradigm of power and all he's ever known from Roman, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And we, they held a sword to their necks and say, you either follow us or die. Well, that's a real quick way to make peace, or at least <laughs> attempt to, I suppose. The establishment of the kingdom of God looks like, not those things, but it looks like a heart-pierced mother and a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah, something that no one really could have predicted. You've seen the jokes about the song, Mary, Did You Know? And then there's another one, Mary Did Know. And, and there's sort of like a fight about it. Um, I'm not fighting with anybody about it. I don't really care what you think about the song. Uh, but it's out there. And the question is, well, Mary, did you know? I, I don't think she knew the extent of all that was going to take place. But Luke tells us that through the words of Simeon, her heart is going to be pierced. That's a different way of thinking about the kingdom, because usually the kingdom involves the literal piercing of hearts, the cutting off of the enemy, right? That's what, that's what peace was known in this time, was you fight or you, or you die or you just give up and you become a part of who we are. But this is a different type of piercing, a pierced mother, a suffering Messiah. No one could have predicted it, despite the prophet Isaiah's very clear and obvious prophecy about the suffering servant who was going to come and, and die for the nation. Uh, upon him, or our, we've casted our sins upon him. He's, he's the one who's chastised for our stripes. He, you know, our, uh, through his wounds are we healed, Isaiah 53. So there's all these images that pop up, and, and apparently no one thought of that during the time of Christ's coming. So hope then... Hope then is built on the foundation of faith, and faith requires us to see with new eyes. So let's look at our passage here, and you can kind of just follow as I go. After the shepherds came to glorify the newborn king, Jesus, like his cousin John, they were circumcised on the eighth day. You can see Genesis 17 when that was instituted. His name was given on this day, signifying the covenant relationship to the child, to, of the child to his covenant Lord. And you might recall Matthew's gospel account. Gabriel is the one who said, you need to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, apparently that name wasn't really given until the presentation of the child to, to the temple, to God. So his name is given here. In verse 22, we find that after the seven days were up, along with the 33 days of purification, they brought the child to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And there are a couple of things that are brought to our attention here. So um, I'm going to explain this. So try to, try to think and imagine yourself in this world. It's hard to do because we're so detached from it. But the first thing is Jewish law required that a mother be sequestered for a total of 40 days after the birth of a male child. So if you were to go back and look at Leviticus 12, uh, there were seven days with the birth of a male. There were seven days that she was considered ceremonially unclean. And on the eighth day, the day of the resurrection, she was given a status of clean. That is, she was uh, essentially covenantally blessed and pure. And so after those seven days... The eighth day comes, the day of resurrection. She's now clean, but there were still then 33 more days. So the next 33 days, she was to stay home and fulfill the cleansing protocol. So, and, and yes, they did home births back then as well. But after seven days, you had to wait 33 more days. So on day 40, there was a purification offering that was required at the temple in Jerusalem. 
So that's what we find here. Just so you know, this is what's going on. This is 40 days after Jesus was born, this incident here. Now, it's noteworthy that the text says they're cleansing, even though it was really only for Mary. The purification requirement at the temple from Leviticus 12 was a requirement for the mother. It was not a requirement for the child. But it's interesting that Luke says they're cleansing. And I think that Luke is tying Mary's need for purification. This is why we reject the, the Roman Catholic version of Mary, who is worshiped and adored, even though they said we don't worship her or adore her that way. Um, but they pray to Mary, and, and that's a problem. And the reason is, is because Mary's a sinner and needs grace too. She's not somehow, she wasn't somehow perfect like Jesus and sinless like Jesus. So she was a sinner in need of grace. She needed purification, and that's what they were there to do. And Jesus, though, needs to be there. The child needs to be there for redemption. And I'm going to explain that next because it's weird to say Jesus needed to be redeemed. But there's a, a reason for that. Not redeemed from his sins, but redeemed in a different sense. So the thread of prudent obedience to God's law is emphasized here by Luke yet again for another a very important reason. This is the second thing. According to Exodus 13, 13 and Numbers 18, 15 through 16, all firstborn creatures, that includes firstborn sons, because even the animals were a part of this formula as well, but all firstborn creatures required a redemption price to be paid because they were considered by God to be consecrated unto him. Now, the price, you ask, the price of the redemption uh, this redemption was paid to the temple, and it was five shekels of silver. Now, this is a point of controversy, and I'm going to tell you right now where I'm at on it, because there's dispute over this text. But I don't think that Mary and Joseph paid that fee, that tax, that kingdom tax to the temple. Some people believe that Luke references it later on, but I just don't, I don't see it. I don't think it's here for another reason. I don't believe Mary and Joseph paid the tax. We have no record of it. No gospel writer says that they did, and nor should we assume that they did. In fact, I believe we have every reason to emphasize that they did not pay it, because if you go all the way back in the first part of 1 Samuel, you might remember a woman named Hannah. Hannah gave her son, that was Samuel, holy unto the Lord. Unto Yahweh, here Jesus is fulfilling the consecration requirement of the law. The firstborn son was set apart and holy unto the Lord. There was a reason for that. So Jesus is fulfilling that. The child there at the temple is fulfilling that. But also, he's effectively dedicating, Mary and Joseph are effectively dedicating him completely unto God, and thus the child remains the property of God. So think of it this way. You take your child to the temple, and you give the blessing, the priest blesses the child, and then you paid five shekels of silver, and then you get your kid back. Now, <laughs> if you remember, Samuel lived in the temple in, in, with, um, with Eli and the other priests that were there, so he was, already, uh, he was already there, and he grew up in the temple. Now, this is sort of the same thing that's going on. I think Luke is trying to tell us that, that Jesus was given to the priest, he was blessed, this is Simeon, who we'll see in a minute. But they didn't pay the, the redemption price. So yes, they took baby Jesus back to Galilee, to Nazareth, the hometown, to where their family, the rest of the family was, but they didn't actually get him back. He's still the Lord's. 
So there's some interesting principles at play here. I believe that there was no redemption there was no redemption for Jesus because he belonged to God prior to the fact that he came to the earth, prior to the incarnation, and then even after the incar- incarnation, he fully belonged to God. So there was no redemption price in my, in my view. They didn't, Mary and Joseph didn't buy him back from Yahweh because the child is God's completely and perfectly. So he was always God's property. And I believe Luke was referencing this when just a few verses later, if you remember the story when Jesus was a young boy, his parents, went, they went for Passover and they accidentally left him behind. Oops, CPS is involved. <laughs> but his parents left him behind in Jerusalem, unbeknownst to them, and when they found him in the temple, <laughs> do you remember his response? He said, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So he belonged to God. Of course, that's where you're going to find him. Of course, that's where he's going to be. Just like Samuel. He's a prophet like Samuel in that regard. The third thing we learn here was that Mary and Joseph were very poor. Mary and Joseph were very poor. This is probably why practically they couldn't pay the redemption price, even though theologically I believe there's a reason why they didn't pay it as, as well. But practically, they couldn't, probably just couldn't afford it either. And there was no penalty for that either. So, but the law of God made a provision for poor people who wanted to sacrifice during this time of purification. Um, you could sacrifice two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Or, the, you know, that was for the poor. Everybody else needed a lamb and at least one of those birds. That was the protocol. Um, but they couldn't do that, so God made a provision. The birds were much cheaper to get. And, and uh, you know, they had access to that in a way that the elite, you know, they didn't like the elite did. So what I believe we're supposed to take from these first few verses is that one, Jesus is a Jew with Jewish parents who were scrupulous and prudent, taking great care to obey Yahweh's law. Two, we learn that they were very poor, which speaks of the lowliness of Jesus himself. And three, Jesus wasn't redeemed from God as the firstborn requires in the five shekel payment. Instead, he was actually given holy unto the Lord in his service. Now, the, again, there's people on both sides of that debate. Uh, I hopefully have convinced you to join, join my side. It is the, the light side, not the dark side. Now, this is where the story t- kind of turns and becomes about hope and suffering. Simeon was a godly Israelite. He was waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. He was a righteous man. The Bible says he longed for the Messiah to come and deliver his people. He longed for redemption. In a manner of speaking, Simeon was a man who wanted another exodus. He wanted another great exodus event. Jerusalem had become become Egypt. It was bad. Deliver us. That's essentially what he was waiting for. And he understood the truth at the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures that the climax of God's dealings with his people would be a messianic deliverance that meant the dawn of a new creation. And it's curious that with regard to Simeon here, the man had received prophetic word from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Now, being if you're older and you sort of know the clock's ticking and time's running out, you might get a little more anxious. I was told by God I would see the Messiah. I would see the comfort of Israel. I would see the deliverer. And he's not here yet. And he's not here yet. And he's not here yet until one day he shows up. Talk about patience. 
The man is already suffering under the burden of sin and the oppression of, of, of Rome, of course, and he waited patiently to see that, prom, that promise come to fruition. You could tell Simeon could feel it in his bones, and the Holy Spirit had prompted, prompted him. I would have loved, you know, I was thinking of like time travel. Where would you want to go? And I can think of a few places in the past couple hundred years I'd like to go to knock some heads together and fix some things, but... It would always fascinate me to think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to like peek into the manger and see the, the birth of Christ and, you know, sort of a righteous version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I guess. But uh, <laughs> going back to see various things, I, I always thought this situation, this scenario would have been a really neat experience. I would have loved to just see Simeon. And the anxiety, and like a righteous anxiety of anticipation, of excitement, and in that moment when he sees the child and the joy, and it would have been, it would be remarkable to see that. Finally, for Simeon, the day had, had arrived. Mary and Joseph arrived to the temple for the presentation of the child, and Simeon offers a blessing. And Simeon acknowledges that as Yahweh's slave, he is now released because he has now seen Christ. He has seen the Deliverer. Simeon also sees the child's coming as that of a Savior and a Deliverer of God's people, not least, of course, of the Gentiles who would believe on Him for salvation as well. Uh, Psalm 98 and even Isaiah 49.6, they both find their resting place on the Son who would deliver nations. And all the nations, not just the Jews, would see and will see this unveiling of the light of the world. Mary and Joseph were told, marvel by what is said here. They marveled at it. Life in the midst of death, peace in the midst of strife, rest in the midst of suffering. How incredible. These people, these parents were wonderstruck. They were wonderstruck. And yet there is more to the story. Simeon, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit in verse 34. He sees that the child's coming would be, first and foremost, a sign of judgment the rising of some and the falling of others. The nation endured much suffering, waiting for God to act, and come to find out, though, God is holy, and judgment is always a part of that equation. See, God's appointed Redeemer will also share in their suffering, and through that suffering, deliver God's people. Simeon gives us great insight into the plan of hope, this great and grand plan of hope. <clears throat> And he did so by declaring that Mary's own soul will be pierced. So there's kind of like a note of sobriety here. Yes, he's going to deliver his people. Yes, this is going to be good. But actually, there's not just the rise of everyone, but it's going to be the fall of some. Kind of a note of sobriety. He's checking their aspirations, and we should be thinking the same thing. Everything is not just great. I saw a meme the other day that and it said, uh, things are really bad, and they're going to get even worse. And it's just sort of like, all right, let that encourage you. Because the worse it gets, the more glorious it's going to be. So Mary's own soul will be pierced. She will look in dismay and incredulity at her son hanging on the cross, rejected by the city he came to say, save. Mary would, in fact, be injured in the process. Israel was called to be the light of the world, but that light had gone out. And what does darkness do to light? tries to snuff it out. That's what we talked about last week. And then we have Simeon here, but we also have someone else we meet. Her name is Anna. She's a prophetess from the tribe of Asher. 
She was rather old, a widow of 84 years of age. She, the Bible says, Luke tells us, interceded on Israel's behalf at the temple through fasting and prayer. She's a person. You're supposed to think, wow, she's devout. And she was. We're told in verse 38 that she began giving thanks to God and she continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Not only was she someone with much fervor, she used her mouth to communicate. She spoke to everyone about God and his deliverance. She was there all the time and she was mouthy. She's a prophetess. That's Prophets are mouthy. So everyone's waiting for the redemption of Israel. Simeon is waiting for God to comfort Israel. He's been told he will see it, but he's waiting. And then we have Anna, who's quite familiar with all the other people who are in the same boat. They, too, are waiting for redemption. So we have two witnesses before us establishing this child's credentials long before they take place. And at the end here, verse 39 and 40, after they finished up their responsibilities in Jerusalem, During this time, this presentation of the child, the family travels back to Galilee, where Jesus would be raised for the next 30 years of his life. And Luke tells us in verse 40, and this is the other reason why we should see the Samuel connection here, because he almost verbatim quotes about Samuel, the child, in verse 40, continued to grow. Jesus continued to grow and became strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The plan was set. Everything's in place. Hope had finally come. What do we do with this passage? Luke's Luke's story here is meant to, to emphasize the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't like the kingdoms of man with their central planners, confiscatory taxation, and general hunger for power and more subservience. The kingdom isn't just one segment of an ethnic group. It's for the world. It's for all people. The kingdom isn't for those who think they're self-sufficient. Rather, the kingdom is for the humble. The kingdom isn't served next to the caviar and wine at all the fancy parties. No, it comes to the lowly. It comes to the contrite. And the Bible tells us it comes to the poor in spirit. See, Christmas deals with mangers and oxen, shepherds and temple rituals. And the elite of the society are found nowhere except for paranoid Herod, who I believe is on the schedule for next week. But what happens when the kingdom comes? We've talked about who it's for, but what does it do? What is it, what is it supposed to do? It's important to know that the New Testament writers, they situate the good news of the gospel within the larger framework of the Jewish story and the promise of Yahweh's return to Zion. Now, I'm going to give you a few thousand years of history very quickly. Yahweh, that's who we find in the the Old Testament, had created the world and all of mankind. Man had sinned, but God promised that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. So God, eventually, after flooding the earth and restoring it with Noah's family, he cut a covenant with Abraham. He cut a covenant with Isaac and his son, Jacob. He had blessed his people. He saved them from Egypt. He gave them his glorious law of liberty at Sinai. He had dwelt among them in the tabernacle. And then he took them into the promised land and was with Joshua and the Israelites the whole time. And then he sent faithful judges to deal with them shrewdly and faithfully. God eventually made a covenant with David, seeking to establish his kingly dynasty. Israel had rebelled. Ezekiel, you may recall, he saw a vision of the glory of Yahweh 
leaving the temple. When God leaves, it's not a good thing. So Ezekiel saw that. Now Israel, now after this, being conquered, they're in perpetual exile among all the nations. They were conquered by Assyria and then Babylon, and of course they were controlled by the Medes and Persians as well. And they had played the harlot. They had gone down to Egypt. And what had happened? Well, as a result, Rome becomes their next problem. And Rome had taken its boot and stomped on its face continually. Where was God? That's the question of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna. Where is God? We've seen all of this. God has dealt with us. Where is he now? He's in the heavens. Yes, he's in the heavens. But when would his glory return to the temple in Jerusalem? In other words, when would God act? Anybody feel like that right now? <laughs> when will God act? When will he act? That's the context of Mary and Joseph's world. This is the context of Simeon and Anna's world. And this is why they were collectively waiting for the redemption of Israel. God's people were looking for Yahweh to return to Zion, for Rome to be defeated, for the temple worship to be restored, and for Israel's light to be reignited. Now, some groups, they gathered themselves, ran off into the, de the desert to do their own thing. They, they decided that they would just retreat because Jerusalem's going to burn anyway. They were actually right about that, come to find out. But they left and they went to the desert and, and they gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a nice contribution to biblical archaeology, some of which you can see in D.C. Dare you go there. Some ran off and did their own thing. Others elevated holiness by strict Torah keeping. These, of course, were the Pharisees. But the religious leaders, they were all misguided, which is why Jesus was born to a lowly couple out in a lowly place, out in the middle of a lowly nowhere, and he was not born to a royal high priest. He was a different kind of priest anyway. If the kingdom of heaven was to come to earth, if it was to come to earth, it was going to come in an unexpected fashion. That's why the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and not a bulldozer. We must not forget that God gave his child, this child, as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He didn't just, it's always somber and, yes, we have precious Jesus. Yeah, but he was a wrecking ball. He disturbed the peace, the false peace of Jerusalem. He was unashamed about the truth, but he was a rock of, of offense. He was a stone of stumbling. They tripped over the cornerstone, we're told repeatedly in Scripture. This child would be the consolation and comfort of Israel. That's what Psalm 119, Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 57, uh, even in Isaiah 61, all those passages were coming now to this moment in time. But before he's a redeemer, he's an offender. And not an offender like in our colloquial view and understanding of he's a offender, an offender as in a former criminal being refurbished, as it were, by the state. No, he's an offensive person in that regard because he is the truth. He came not to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. Not very nice. See, hope is not built on the sinking sands of wishful thinking. It's not built on humanism or collectivism or the subjective whims of man. In fact, true hope, if it is to be hope, comes from outside of us. It's not something we conjure up. It's not conjured up as exemplified by Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man doing his duties faithfully, as was Anna. But they had no control over this situation. He just knew as an older man, he might have another hundred years 
but he said he wasn't going to die until he saw the deliverer. Patience, stamina, it comes from, without, from outside of us. It's not conjured up. They couldn't, Simeon and Anna, they couldn't make God act, and so they had to be faithful in the here and now. By the way, that's part of the point tonight. We can't just force God's hand, because right now we have a lot of problems, shall we say. And we would love God to act, but it's on his timetable, and it's not ours. It's not something we make. We're supposed to simply be faithful with what God has put in front of you, not what's not in front of you. And yet God, in this moment, in his divine sovereignty, chose these two to participate in the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. Why? Why? Well, ultimately, it's because God is sovereign and gracious, and he does things like that. He does that from time to time. But I think there's something more going on. Simeon and Anna are both covenant members of Israel, and thus, I believe Luke's pointing them out because they're in a... They're sort of covenant representatives in this case. They are exemplary God-fearers. They were God-fearers. It's as though God wanted to demonstrate why there was a need for the rising and falling of many. Why must the judgment come? Why must some fall and some rise? Why is that the case? Like many times in Israel's past, there had been a remnant who remained faithful to the covenant. But then there was the tyranny of the majority. The tyranny of the majority. Wicked men like Ahab who led Israel astray. What might God do with a man like him? What might God do with a man like Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci? What might, a, what might God do with a man like Donald Trump or Joe Biden? What, would, what, what might God do? And the only thing that can be done is a moment of judgment, a day of reckoning. And we believe that as Christians, there will be a final judgment. History will be wrapped up like a scroll. We will have the new heavens and new earth and the fullness of, of all things. And, and it'll be a, a hoot of a time, I'm sure, to put it lightly. We can only dream right now. We can only imagine. But there's also judgment in history that we wait for as well and that we see happen from time to time. And the greatest moment of judgment, the greatest day of reckoning ever was the cross of Christ. It was the cross of Christ. The cross demonstrated that God is both just, God is just, meaning he does punish evildoers, and he's also, Paul says in Romans, the justifier, giving grace to those who trust him. The cross was the line in the sand, the line of all lines. The falling of many would be their judgment for having rejected the Messiah. And we know that occurred in AD 70. And by August of that year, Rome had destroyed Jerusalem. The whole city was on fire. God came in judgment. And he did. The falling of many. A lot of people died in the Jewish-Roman wars from 66 to 70 AD. A lot. But it was the line in the sand. The linchpin of all judgment was what people did with the Messiah. Did they look on him like the Israelites had done to the bronze serpent in the wilderness? Or did they mock him? What did they do with Jesus? Did they mock him? Did they spit on him? Did they pluck his beard? Did they walk away from him unmoved and unimpressed? Yeah, a lot of people did. And that's how it is then. That's how it was then. And that's how it is now. That's how it is always. We should not find ourselves today befuddled and confused by the judicial stupor happening all around us. Don't, 
I mean, I know, because all of us joke. I mean, we are meme makers. We have a lot of good memes out there right now. And we need to flood the internet with them. But <laughs> it's one of those things where we're all sort of just waiting for the next variant to be announced so that more controls can be levied against us. And, and you think, wow, people are going to wake up eventually. I, I think they will. But don't be befuddled by it. Don't, 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 don't be shocked. Be prepared. Be wise. And this is because God judges nations. Don't be, don't be confused and unsure. And don't immediately just say, well, the end of the world's at hand. They've been saying that for a long, long time. Don't, don't go that route either. Just stop and say, yeah, God's judging us. Not, not great. Slightly uncomfortable. And it may be even more uncomfortable should the thing continue. <laughs> but God judges nations. He judges individuals. He judges nations. And he does so, all of it, based on the authority of his son. So Mary and Joseph are there. They're hearing this blessing from Simeon. And guess what? They're, they're, they were wonderstruck at what Simeon had said. Just mind-blowing information. Wow, that's amazing. Had someone said that about one of my children, I would feel the same way. The rise of many in the... I'd be excited out of my mind, too, but... What an impressive thing to have said to your child. So here is a young handmaiden. She's given birth to a king, and it's incredible. And yet we must, we must stop for a second and do something about that wonder. Do something about that wonder. See, wonder always brings faith with it. You're supposed to not drive by the mountains and yawn. I mean, you might need to had, you been a, had it been a long day. But you shouldn't be unimpressed. You should be in awe of it. And that wonder drives us and brings us to faith. Faith is there the whole time. Wonder brings hope. It brings peace. It brings joy. Wonder also brings judgment. We sang it earlier. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. But the thing is, if you do not believe, you cannot understand. You cannot know. You cannot perceive. You cannot see. He who has faith can truly wonder because he understands. This is a great thing that Augustine gave us through Western civilization. But faith gives way to understanding. I have faith. I believe in order that I might, that I might understand. The, the rest of the Greco-Roman world, I understand and then maybe I'll believe if, I, if it fits me at the moment. It's the complete opposite in the Christian world. And right now, we do need to understand that God is judging the nations and he's judging it right now. He's judging the nations right now. It's, it's mind-boggling because I can always tell which Christians may fall into the category of slightly asleep at the wheel right now. And they are the ones that say, God's going to judge us if we don't stop. You're asleep. He's judging us right now. <laughs> Most people, though, can't see it. The globalist nonsense with a near 7% inflation is choking the life out of our country. God is judging us. And for whatever reason, we have not yet come to the end of ourselves. We have not yet reached the bottom of the barrel. We have not felt the need to cry out to God for deliverance just yet. We have placed our hope elsewhere. We have put our hope in the scientists and the politicians, the central planners and the statists. And we have very few simians and annas walking around speaking those words of judgment. There's so much suffering. There's, there, we need the consolation. We need to deli the deliverance. And that's where we're, we're at right now. And what I want to do as we wrap up here is focus our thoughts on this concept of hope. 
Unlike Simeon and Anna, we are looking backwards to the cross of Christ. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know that he rose for our justification. It's only, that's the linchpin of judgment. That's the linchpin of history. Everything rises and falls on that Messiah, the crucified and risen Savior. So we believe on him. He died for our sins. He rose for our justification. But what we need to do now is implement that victory. We preach it. We build our lives upon it. We insist on it every single day that I'm going to live for the kingdom of God. We boast in that. And that's it. That's, the, that's it. That's the formula. Believe it, preach it, build your lives upon it, and boast about it. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the grace of God. And hope, then, isn't passive. Hope is not a pacifist. Hope is active. We are a faith-filled people who hope for God to act in our midst, and we act like that's going to happen. We expect it to happen. Paul says in Romans 5.5 that hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He says in Romans 8.24, In hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? What child is going to be super excited about their Christmas gift when they've already seen it because they opened it or spied or did something devious and wrong? Children don't do that. Who hopes for what he can't... Who, for, who hopes for things that you already see? And he says in Romans 8.25, but if we hope what... If we hope what we do not see... For what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Thomas Watson said it like this, and I can't say it any better, so he deserves a, a, a quote here. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he said, Hope looks at the excellency of the promise. Faith to the certainty of the promise. Hope reads over the terms of the promise. Faith looks at the seal of the promise. Faith believes. Hope waits. Faith shows the Christian the land of promise. Hope sails thither with patience. Faith strengthens hope, and hope comforts faith. I love that. Faith strengthens hope, and hope comforts faith. Because sometimes faith is hard to come by. Faith is the cable, he says, and hope is the anchor. And both these help to keep the soul steady, that it doth not dash upon rocks or sink in the quicksands. See, the hope that we have is built on an empty tomb. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, dedicated to God at the temple with two witnesses, Simeon and Anna, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, risen for our salvation. Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over the nations with a rod of iron. Today, he is our hope. Our faith believes on these truths. Our faith holds fast to these truths. In all of our suffering, in all of our discomfort, and all the stress, all the anxiety, the worry, we must cry out to God. This passage is here to keep us from despair. Sometimes hope means waiting, but sometimes hope means taking action. Faith illumines the destination. Hope is the paddling of the oars. It's Christmas, church. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God, the psalmist says. 
And Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Christian, you've been given this Christ. Don't romanticize the child in the manger. Rather, cling to the true man, the God-man himself, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pause during this season of Advent to remember, to ponder, to be comforted by the truth that you are, in fact, glorious and good. And we thank you for the obedience of Mary and Joseph taking the child to the temple. We thank you that that child grew in wisdom and stature and that eventually that man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So we glory in that this Christmas. And Father, as we look around to a world much, very much confused, very much in the dark, I ask and pray that your light would shine forth, that we would be a people who are insistent upon the gospel of the kingdom. So we ask for your favor now as we partake of communion, as we uh, participate in our agape fest, our, fe- our fellowship time, Lord, with good food. We pray for our uh, friends and family who couldn't be here. God, would you be glorified in what we do? And may, be, may we be equipped. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.